like they don't even exist. Okay, coming up next, I got a clip from the John Stossel Show, and Stefan Kinsella is going to join me to talk about intellectual property. America grants certain rights to creators of songs, books, movies, paintings. The idea is to encourage the creation and proliferation of new ideas by providing a brief and limited period of exclusivity. I'm an intellectual property attorney and you have stolen my client's melody. You can be sued and found liable for monetary damages. And yet, some of you watch my show on YouTube. That's stealing. And that's our show tonight. That was the voice of John Stossel last week as he discussed intellectual property. And one of the guests on the show was patent attorney and libertarian writer Stefan Kinsella, who joins me now. Stefan, thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm very well. Glad to be here. Yeah, I thought it was uh, very encouraging, actually, that uh, the John Stossel show decided to take on this issue. Of course, he leans libertarian, but uh, he has pretty much a mainstream audience, I think. And uh, so you were part of that segment, but I want to talk about the segments that preceded you. They had uh, a pro-libertarian, sorry, a pro-IP advocate and an anti-IP advocate. And I thought it was very interesting because they started with a utilitarian argument. John Stossel framed it this way. And they brought up, um, I would say, over the course of the show, five different examples. Perhaps there are some that I missed, but uh, uh, five or six. And uh, the ones that I remember are uh, magic tricks, music, fashion, TV, literature, and comedy. And the interesting three about interesting thing about those were uh, three of them are protected by IP, three are not. And if you if you don't really think about these things, you wouldn't really know which ones were and which ones weren't because there's so much innovation in all six areas. Correct. Uh, yeah, the show uh, the show was a very good show. I think um, I was very heartened that they had it. I mean, to have a mainstream show deal with IP policy from a libertarian perspective. Uh, I think it's probably the first time it's ever been done, and I give Sossel um, credit for being open-minded, and I think he's leaning in our direction. Um, he did say he wasn't sure where the line should be. He wants there to be some IP, but he he recognized it's not always necessary, and he recognized lots of problems with it. Um, the interesting thing about the show I found out uh, after I was there is that each of the segments had different producers, so it's just a big operation. And I was actually contacted twice <laughs> by two producers independently. So I was contacted for my segment, and then a few days later I was contacted by the other producer for that first segment, which was a debate. But I said, I'm already going to be on the show, and he said, well, who else can we get? And I said, well, here's three or four really good free market anti-IP people, including David Kepsel, who was the guy that appeared on the first segment. And uh, so they took him because he uh, he's uh, very similar to me. In fact, he and I are co-editing a book later this year on um, sort of a collection of anti-IP but free market writings over the centuries and decades. So we're working on that together um, right now. But um, yeah, Stossel's show – the first segment was a debate between an IP attorney from California and Kepsel. And then there was the um, um, yeah the other the other guests other than me and Kepsel were not really anti IP but the the points that they were brought out to make I think were ended up supporting my side because you had Chris Brigman who was talking about how the fashion industry thrives um, in the lack of copyright protection and in the face of piracy and copying if you want to call it piracy and then there was a comedian who showed that um, you really can't get protection for magic tricks with 
standard ca- copyright and patent, but the community has a way to self-enforce people who sort of take credit for others' tricks. Um, and the same in the in the comedian industry. There was that comedian Doug Stanhope, who's a libertarian comedian, who was the last guest. Um, so I thought it was a really balanced and good show uh, overall, and pretty much predominantly anti-IP. And uh, a couple of the points that were raised, I thought they were excellent point. The fashion expert, he, he basically said that uh, you know th- these high-profile, leading-edge fashion designers, they actually benefit from copying. And, and you wonder if those leading uh, uh, fashion designers could even exist or enjoy the trend-setting position that they do without copying. It seems like their position is, is almost reliant on copying. And then uh, the example of the literature, basically talking about uh, the um, anti-copyright, I guess, or, or the, the lack of IP in the U.S. Uh, resulted in uh, so many people g- gaining access to literature and uh, becoming literate because of it. Well, not only that, they gave a great example of Dickens, um, who um, who was upset at first, if I remember the story correctly, that his work was being pirated widely in the U.S. because the copyright protection at the time did not apply to works of foreign authors, um, and, and he was dismayed by it. But it made him so popular over here that he was able to come over here and go on this big speaking circuit because he was a fa- he was famous and revered, and he made so much money on that trip from speaking. That it constituted a large share of his estate when he died, actually. Right. And so uh, so that was the discussion. And then the pro-IP person in the debate, he almost immediately conceded uh, the utilitarian argument by just uh, shifting focus almost immediately to, uh, to the morality aspect. And I, <laughs> I think the problem here, I, you might disagree, but... Uh, Sometimes I've seen it before where, where you can win an argument, and I think we did so convincingly here. Even just by letting this person talk, I think, was enough because he switched to the morality play. But then he talks about the different aspects of how you would have to enforce IP, even in the absence of actual legislation. He talks about Shakespeare helping uh, to close down theaters violently. Stossel says, what do you do? Just go down there with a gang and yeah, go ahead. Right. It, it, it kind of exposes the thuggery behind it, really, and that it's really censorship. Uh, and, of course, this guy, it's a case of special pleading. He's a patent att- or he's an IP attorney, so, of course, he has an interest in the system. So he's really didn't have the most credibility on the show. Um, you know, the other guests didn't really get to talk about the morality on the other side, so we didn't have time. It was more utilitarian focused. But I thought one of the most damning things that the guy said, which we could have explored, was they were talking about. Um, I think it was a George Harrison song, "My Sweet Lord" or something like that. Yes. That that um, has like a, a very small uh, clip in it um, that it resembles some older song, and uh, I think there was a settlement or something like that. But basically, the, guy, the 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 IP lawyer said, yeah, he was infringing other people's copyright when he did that. And if you take that logic to an extreme. It, what that means is if copyright had been enforced properly, we would never have had that song. Uh, in other words, the original person whose tune was sort of being borrowed as part of the background in that song could have vetoed that song, and we wouldn't have one of the most beautiful pop songs you know, in history to, to grace humanity with. It, ended, it could have ended up stopping it. Um, 
you know, at least the copyright lawyer could could argue for some kind of non-injunction regime where you can always do what you want. You might have to pay a little bit of a, of a tax later, you know, some kind of damages. But they don't argue for that. They want the copyright holder to be able to stop people from doing things. In fact, this has been done before. People don't realize that in the U.S. there was a judge that literally banned the publication of a book which was a sequel to Catcher in the Rye. Because it was a derivative work and not authorized by the estate, he just said, "No, you just can't publish this book." It wasn't even like you got you can publish it and then you might have to pay damages. You just can't publish it. That's outright book banning by the state. Um, copies of this German film uh, Nosferatu, a, a, va a vampire film, were ordered destroyed and seized and destroyed and just erased from the face of the earth because it was a so supposedly a knockoff of Dracula or something like that. So this this kind of book banning and censorship of ideas is literally the result of uh, of these systems. And uh, in my view, this is just the tip of the iceberg because as as important as music and culture and art are to society, I mean, there are other things too, scientific discovery, health breakthroughs, things like that, things that could actually literally save lives uh, that, that could be banned because of IP. Oh, and that actually is happening and does happen. There are literally people that have died because of patents. Um, I mean, to take a simple example, there are you know various patents on seat seat belt mechanisms and safety mechanisms in cars. And if one manufacturer gets a patent on it, they can prevent others from using a similar life-saving uh, mechanism. So others have to design around. Um, and there are drugs. There's a drug called, and I have it on my website, c4sif.org. If you look up, just go to my site and look up Fabrazyme, F-A-B-R-A-Z-Y-M-E. Uh, it's a drug that treats, I think it's called Fabry's disease. It's one of these weird debilitating diseases, and people can die from it. And there's only one type of drug that apparently works, and there's one manufacturer in the U.S. that has a patent on it, and um, they can't make enough. Now, this was a few years ago. I don't know where it's resulted, but there were, there's two drugs in Europe that, that work, but they can't be imported here because of FDA regulations. So there's only one here, and we were shipping this one to the Europeans because the market was better for some reason. So there was a shortage, and no one else could make it here. Uh, because of the patent, and we couldn't import the alternative drug because of the FDA regulations. So you have all these patients in America suffering from Fabry's disease, unable to buy legally the drug from the manufacturer, um, and no one else could make it. So it's it's really killing people. So it you know it seems like the the moral argument is also a slam dunk. And when the uh, pro IP uh, attorney was uh, confronted with basically uh, the coercion that takes place to you know to implement and enforce these laws. He says, "Well, I don't, I don't shut anyone down in their workshop. I do it in a courtroom, <laughs> as if that right, legitimized right. the whole process." Right. Yeah, it's like they 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 think hiding the fangs uh, makes them you know makes makes it like they're not there. <laughs> they're just hiding the wolf's fangs. But uh, I'd almost rather an honest. It's like the, the Spooner quote about the highwayman versus the state. You'd almost prefer the highwayman who robs you once and leaves you alone and. He doesn't have the gall to pretend he's like he's doing you a favor. He doesn't follow you around your whole life and pretend he's doing something good for you. And uh, you know it's a once one it's a one time deal. Um, but the state always pretends like they're doing you a favor and they never let you go. Um, doing it through the courts almost makes it worse. It institutionalizes it, and it's so expensive uh, to defend from these suits that bullying is a big part of it. There are copyright trolls and patent trolls. Um, and they go around extorting money from people even when they arguably have a good defense against the patent infringement or the copyright infringement, but they know that they don't want to go through a two or three or four million dollar 
uh, lawyer legal fees just to defend themselves and to win, so they cough up half a million dollars or something like that or $100,000 to make them go away. And there are estimates that in – I think if, since around 1990 to about five years ago when this study was done over about a 2015, 25-year period, estimates that patent trolls alone had extracted half a trillion dollars. Um, and I think the latest trend I had seen was about $80 billion a year on, in recent years. So patent trolls are taking about 80 to $100 billion a year in royalties from companies all across the U.S., um, probably often based upon just a, a threat of an expensive lawsuit that they might not even be able to win. Now, that's just patent trolls. There's also real patent lawsuits from non-trolls, which are probably 10 times bigger than that. So we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Are just taken from companies, um, or, or that impose that much cost in terms of lost innovation or lost competition or increased prices because there's there's less competition and more oligopolies and cartels. Um, so the cost of the patent system, in terms of dollar costs and innovation costs, is is gargantuan. I like that they brought in the issue of uh, basically corporate interests, and uh, one of the one of the. Um Gentleman brought up, it could have been Stossel actually, brought up the case of, I think it was Snow White, that uh, Disney or someone had uh, received a copyright on that story or something like that. And so you can't tell the story anymore. And, th and then this is something that they actually had extended as well. Can you uh, explain that? Yeah, it's and 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 it gets a little complicated because of the way copyright law works, and because most people that aren't really deep experts in this field get confused by it, which is understandable. Even Stossel, on his show, even with all the, I, I mean, in fact, everyone on the show, I believe, except for the comedian, was a lawyer. They didn't say that, but everyone was a lawyer. David Kepsel has a law degree. He's a philosopher. Um, um, the law professor, of course, and me, and also the magician apparently has a law degree. <laughs> so I was wondering about that. He seemed very knowledgeable. He did. I was surprised, and then later on, I looked at his bio, and he's like, "Oh, he's like he a polymath kind of guy." And he, but in any case, but even Stossel kind of mixed up trademark and copyright and patent at one point in one of his, his little uh, monologues. Um, in the in the term in, in copyright, the way it works, and the copyright lawyer in the beginning sort of alluded to this, but basically Disney took a story that's in the public domain, which was the German folktale of Snow White or whatever, and they made their own version of it, and that's basically a derivative work of a public domain work. So the copyright is held by Disney, and it's in the new derivative work, but it really wouldn't prevent someone from making their own Snow White. However, Disney might sue them for trademark infringement if they used the word Snow White because they probably also claim trademark in that term. Um, but the hypocrisy, if you want to call it, is that Disney was using things that are in the public domain to make a new work that they got a copyright on, and the work was in the public domain only because copyright doesn't last forever or because those works were created so long ago before before copyright had expired or, or before copyright existed. But Disney keeps lobbying Congress to extend the term of copyright every time one of their major characters like Mickey Mouse is about to go into the public domain. They did this in the 90s with the Sonny Bono copyright term extension and gave Mickey Mouse yet another life. Um, the U.S. is now at life of the author plus 70 years, or it's a different term for corporate works, but that's roughly the, the term. Um, most, A lot of the other parts of the world only have life of the author plus 50 years. So the U.S. is now using this TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is allegedly a trade agreement right, meant to lower barriers to trade, 
and the countries that it's negotiating with, we already have pretty much low barriers to trade. So really this is meant to extend US-style IP protection, and I believe just in the last couple of days, I think Canada has agreed finally and probably some of the other countries too that are part of this TPP negotiation to go ahead and add 20 more years to the term of their copyright from 50 to 70 after the life of the author to match the US term. And I guarantee you that in a few years when some of these other characters start expiring or entering the public domain, uh, you're going to have strong pressure on Congress to make it life of the author plus 90 years. So they keep – it basically makes it in perpetuity. They've even done this before for works that have entered the public domain, and then they get Congress to change the law and make it retroactive. So you've had works and characters that have entered the public domain because the, the copyright term finally expired. Then Congress passes an extension of the copyright term, and it snatches something that was already public domain and puts it back into the copyright coverage. It's crazy. Okay, and now we get to your segment, basically, because now we're talking about what this is really about. And you made a great point that I wish uh, you guys had time to elaborate on, uh, because Stossel or someone brings up the issue of property rights. And he says, as you know, libertarians, uh, this is something that we feel very strongly about, property rights. You made an interesting point. You said, look, I'm a libertarian. I value property rights probably more than anyone else, definitely more than conservatives. And property rights never expire. Yet patents and copyrights and these things do expire. So that should be a hint as to what's really going on here. So, Stefan, what's really going on here? Right. I do think it was a, that was a good point to make because I could make it very shortly and it gave people time to think, but I didn't have time to elaborate as much. Um, actually, I did talk more about that, but they, they cut some of that out for time reasons. But um, – um, and Tom Bell makes this point, by the way, in his book on intellectual privilege. Um, the, the, and most supporters of IP don't want it to last forever. So even they or I mean, you could overcome this this sort of contradiction or this inconsistency by saying, well, then property right, uh, IP rights should last forever, just like just like uh, regular property rights do. And a few people do advocate that, uh, like um, uh, Lysander Spooner actually <laughs> believed did, and Galambos did, Alexander Galambos, Andrew Galambos, sorry, two libertarians who supported IP. Most libertarians who support IP, even even the, the non-utilitarians like Ayn Rand, even she thought that they should only last for a certain amount of time. And her argument as to why they should last 17 years or 70 years or whatever is so contorted and so – uh, sort of reverse engineered you know, to, to justify this arbitrary rule that Congress passed. That's actually what made me a skeptic in the first place, reading Ayn Rand's con con contorted, convoluted attempts to justify this arbitrary copyright and patent term. Um, as Tom Bell points out, the, the founders who were in favor of copyright and patent – that's why they put this clause in the Constitution – they never did treat them as property rights. They never thought they were property rights, and that's exactly why the Constitution says Congress can enact these rights for limited times. It was just supposed to be like a temporary uh, infringement into the market to induce more innovation than otherwise would happen, etc. So there's a utilitarian basis. They weren't considered to be property rights by the founders. Uh, they were never considered to be property rights. They were called monopoly rights or they were called privileges. In fact, Thomas Jefferson proposed an amendment that was going to be included in the Bill of Rights, which he tried to limit uh, how long these terms could be, and he had a proposed amendment to the Constitution, which would have been in the Bill of Rights, um, which was rejected. But it would have said something like, uh, Congress shall have the power to grant monopolies to inventors and artists, but only for X years. So he wanted them to put a term in there like 15 years or 40 years or something. He wanted a maximum cap in there, but he called them monopolies because that's what they are. Um, 
now he was in favor of them with 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 hesitation you know with 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 misgivings um but he didn't think that they were property rights none of the founders did it wasn't until the free market economists in the 18 mid 1800s started really opposing the growing threat of patents and copyrights and calling them monopolies and privileges and and uh, protectionism and censorship that the defenders of IP who were now um, – in fact, it wasn't called IP at the time. It was just called patent and copyright or monopolies. They started referring to them as property rights as a propaganda campaign to defend these rights. So they just made this term up to appeal to people's natural sympathy towards property rights, but they're not property rights, of course. Property rights don't expire. They've done an excellent job at that propaganda. Now, overall, I would say this was a great episode, and I'm glad they did it. Uh, but in the end, there was a little bit of disappointment at the end where Stossel basically says, look, it takes money. He used his own show as an example. It takes money to put on show like this. I employ many people. There's a lot of capital involved. I don't know if we'd do it if we didn't have copyright. And so in the end, he falls back on this, basically this tired a defense of IP, which is basically utilitarian, but it's personal utility. IP he works did. for me, and therefore I support it. Although, to be honest, I think – well, I think he moved in our direction. He seemed to nod at some of my points. Um, I think actually he may be more on our side than he let on. I think he, he feels compelled to take his his employer's side, which is Fox, which is you know a big media empire, which – thinks that it relies upon copyright. I actually think they're probably wrong about that, but they think that they need copyright. So he even said he likes when people uh, pirate his show on YouTube. He personally likes it, but he's worried about whether his employer likes it. So you can see he's got this sort of uh, uh, conflict of interest almost. Uh, if I had had time, I would have pointed out two things to him. Number one, I would have said as a really principled libertarian um, you know, with a principled view towards property rights, I would have said, look… If there's a certain business model that cannot make sense absent copyright law, then unfortunately that business model has to go. That's the bottom line. It's just like antitrust law or taxes. You know, uh, you know, if people want to collude and set prices on the free market, they have the right to, even if even if they could. I don't think they could in most cases because there's too much competition to permit that. But bottom line is, people have the right to do what they want with their own property rights. Um, the same thing here. But I would also argue that I don't think they really need copyright to make a profit. He can still have a show. He can have advertisers. Um, uh, maybe he wouldn't make quite as much money on the secondary and tertiary streams of income because there would be more and more competition for that. But they would have a reputation. They'd have a channel. They'd have good quality content. They'd be reliable. People people would still sell ads. People make ads now um, on the internet with popular websites even though piracy and copying of their content is possible. Why is that possible? So – just because someone hasn't yet figured out a business model that would work in a copyright-free world doesn't mean we need to have copyright. People need to adapt to adjust property order rather than a property order adapting to the business models people are used to. Yeah, these are all great points, and it's basically the uh, the basics of a of a free market and just society, right? The producers and the businesses adapt to the markets, not the other way around. And in business, think about technology and other things. We solve so many more difficult problems than yes. how to have a product without someone copying it. I mean, the problems that we solve are so much more difficult than that. If we just put a little bit more of our resources into figuring out how to secure the profit, I don't think we would have to rely on these laws. And not to mention all 
of the money that's wasted uh, as it stands on internal uh, legal teams and whatnot. I just think it's a it's a it's a slam dunk. But the work is not done, Stefan. So I think you're going to have to go back on that Stossel show and just just work on John a little bit more. He he is doing a great job. I think you're right, and uh, he's got an obligation to his employer. So that was a good point too. But but uh, it wouldn't hurt if you could get on there again and and, and maybe you know sway things a little bit more in our direction. Well, uh, I would never turn down a trip to New York. I tell you, that's a lot of fun. So, All right. Thanks for joining me, Stefan. And I hope you'll come back again. I really want to get into that uh, TPP issue because that is a very important issue. And I think not a lot of people know about that. So please, thanks for joining me. And I hope you'll come back again. Be happy to do it. Thanks a lot. And that is The Economy for Friday, February 6th. My thanks to Stefan Kinsella for joining me today. Please visit his website at c4sif.org. That's C, the letter 4, S-I-F dot O-R-G. If you have a question or comment, please send it along to question at powerandmarket.com or you can tweet at Albert K. Liu. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Albert Liu. Until next time, take care. The Economy was brought to you by WB Wealth Management, an independent fee-based financial advisory firm and the Woodlands Bullion Company, your exclusive source for precious metals. Visit us online at wbadvisors.com. The Economy is produced by WB Wealth Management in cooperation with Signal Innovations, LLC. This program is intended for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell securities or alternative investments. 